Um, so this morning, uh, we have a special guest. Uh, his name is Tom Cole. He's a senior judge for the state of Oregon. Uh, he's retired, but he's still on assignment um, all around the state. So he's going to be sharing with us. Um, horrifically and very tragically, um, if you read in his bio that I shared in the email, uh, his daughter uh, was murdered in 2006. And as you can imagine, I mean, that would turn anyone's world upside down. Um, but that also allowed Tom access into the prisons. Um, just, you'll hear more about that. But uh, because of that, he has begun speaking in, in prisons all around the country. And now uh, there's a new ministry, and you'll, you'll hear about that too. There's um, some information on your table uh, right here in the state of Oregon. Something that's really amazing is, is unfolding, um, which will be a real blessing to these inmates. So uh, Tom is going to be our speaker. Tom, come on up. Uh, we're blessed to have you. And um, thank you. Okay, well, thank you for having me here this morning. It's a real blessing. The table I was sitting at, I told them they had to laugh loud at all the jokes and, and applaud. So they did. Real, thank you very much. You guys did a really good job. Uh, it's really, it really is a pleasure to, to be here. It's an honor to be here. Um, and uh, let me start out by saying when we share our journeys with others, sometimes it's helpful to describe where our destination is. And so here's the destination that I want to share with you this morning. In September of 2019, that's 2019, college classes will begin, God willing, for 25 men in the Oregon State Correctional Institution. OSCI is one of 14 prisons in the state of Oregon. These student inmates will have at least eight years left, so we're going to have college, we're going to have inmates going to college here in the state of Oregon while they are in prison, but they're going to have, have at least eight years left on their sentences. Now, these classes will be a fully accredited four-year college degree, giving them hope in the midst of extremely difficult circumstances. And after receiving this degree, the men will be sent out as missionaries to the rest of the Oregon prisons to disciple, encourage, mentor, and counsel their fellow inmates. And this is only a journey that God could orchestrate. So the journey for me began back in Defiance, Ohio, where I was born a long, long time ago. And unfortunately, Defiance has sometime, sometimes been a troublesome aspect in my character and personality. And you'll see maybe as we go along here. I was raised a Protestant. Um, I knew of Jesus, but I really didn't know him. And I didn't have any type of personal relationship with him. Growing up, I could hardly ever please my father. I couldn't even mow the lawn right for him. But I could see my dad, I, my, my dad really uh, took great pride in how well I did in sports, and so I really tried to do well. I wanted to please my dad. In, the senior, in my senior year of high school, I received a scholarship to play football at the uh, University of Kentucky. <clears throat> and in my second year, I suffered a career-ending career ending injury. I then joined a fraternity and started drinking and drugging and uh, making some really, really poor choices. Fortunately, I didn't, caught, didn't get caught for any of those poor choices, and the statute of limitations prohibits any type of prosecution on that. <laughs> at the end of my third year at Kentucky, things were going so bad that I dropped out of school, and I ended up joining the Peace Corps, and I spent two years in India. After India, I returned back to the United States and then finished up at UK. 
I got married. I went to law school at the University of Toledo. Law school was really difficult for me. Uh, I had a hard time studying, uh, but eventually I did graduate in the top 10% of the lower half of my law school class. <laughs> a few years after graduation uh, from law school, my first marriage ended in divorce. And then in 1982, I moved to Oregon, newly married uh, to my second wife. I got a job working as a labor lawyer in Portland, and in 1983, we had our first child, Zach, and then in 1985, we had our second, Megan. I have so many fond memories of the kids growing up, of Megan growing up, uh, Megan sitting on my lap at night, uh, falling asleep, taking her upstairs to bed, and then praying that prayer with her that maybe a lot of you prayed with your children or your parents prayed with you. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. One day when I came home from work, Megan came running up to me and she says, Daddy, look at my new business card. <clears throat> Megan was in the fifth grade at the time. The business card said, if you ever need a friend, just call me. And then it had her home phone number on there. She was drawn to kids who were, who were down and out, who were bullied by classmates. Um, she was drawn to the last, the least, and the lost in her class. As the years went by, Megan's heart became more and more compassionate for people but she really couldn't keep healthy boundaries. She often found herself drawn into the drama. In 1997, I was appointed to the bench by uh, Governor Kitzhaber in Washington County. And you didn't want to appear in front of me if you were committing crimes and doing drugs in Washington County. I was extremely harsh and handed out very stiff sentences. That sounds a little hypocritical, doesn't it, after hearing about my upbringing at the University of Kentucky and the things that went on there. I was also struggling in my second marriage at that time, and eventually it ended in divorce. So another failed marriage, and now two children who are angry with me. Around that time, I met Julie, who would become my third wife, and she was a Christian. I always thought I was a Christian, uh, but this was different. <clears throat> I started going to church with her. Uh, uh, my ears were starting to get unplugged. My heart was starting to change. Uh, and each time I heard the pastor's sermon, it seemed like he was pointing his finger directly at me. In fact, I was wondering if Julie was having conversations with him during the week before we, we came to church. The pastor's name was uh, Rich Jones. He, he's the current pastor at Calvary Chapel Worship Center in Hillsboro, Oregon. At that time, except for Julie, I felt like my life was a failure. And then in the fall of 2000, I was invited to attend a men's retreat at the Oregon coast. It sounded like fun, uh, going to the beach, uh, hanging out with some of the men barbe and barbecuing. However, on the first night there, November 3rd, 2000, during a gospel message, I realized what a mess my life was. I realized I couldn't live on my own terms anymore. I had made so many mistakes. I had hurt so many people. I didn't feel like God could ever forgive me. I didn't feel like I was worthy for forgiveness. So I gave up and asked Jesus Christ to come into my life on that night, November 3rd, 2000. At the age of 53, I could truly feel the unconditional love of Jesus Christ for the very first time in my life. A little less than a year later, Pastor Rich Jones married Julie and I. In 2004, I found out that Megan was using methamphetamine on a regular basis. She, in fact, had become a drug addict. 
She was becoming more and more distant from me. She was angry at me. I'm sure that she felt abandoned and she was in pain. I began to understand that methamphetamine, heroin, cocaine are all non-discriminatory drugs. They cut across all social, racial, economic boundaries. Those drugs take away a mother's God-given instinct to even protect her child. During that time, uh, Julie and I were hoping and praying that Megan would get arrested and be brought into the criminal justice system, uh, that she would be held, finally be held accountable to a judge or a probation officer. Parents going down this road with their children understand this type of prayer, this plea of hoping and praying that their child would be brought into the system. My daughter was out of control, and her life was on a dangerous downward spiral. Then in May of 2006, I was notified by the Portland Police Department that Megan had been arrested, jailed, and charged with the distribution and possession of methamphetamine. I believe this was an answer to prayer. Now my daughter would finally have an opportunity to change her life, to be held accountable. Uh, however, because of the overcrowding in the jail in, in Portland, she was released within a day. And then two months later, on July 21st, a Friday around 11.30 p.m., I heard our doorbell ring. I was in bed. I put on some sweats and went downstairs. And through a window in our door, I recognized the senior district attorney along with two strangers. I invited them into my home, and I knew something was very wrong. After introductions, one of the men said, Judge, please sit down. Megan was murdered. A parent's worst nightmare had become a reality for me. I broke down sobbing. I went into a deep, dark place, and I was filled with hopelessness. The psalmist in Psalm 42, 7 says, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. In a book that I later wrote called Losing Megan, I write these words. <clears throat> I have heard the term waves of grief before. Now I knew exactly what they were and how they felt. They truly were waves, like a huge wall of water completely submerging me in its power and overcoming me with sorrow and despair, hopelessness in a sea of sorrow. After Megan's murder, I knew intimately what the psalmist was talking about. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. On July 21st, 2006, I did not think that God could ever work any good from my daughter's brutal murder. How could any good come from this type of tragedy? If someone had dropped this scripture on me at that time, I don't know what I, how I would have received it. And that's a reminder to me to be careful at times how you share scripture with other people. And then at the same time, I don't know how I could have survived this tragedy without God in my life. So I turned to him, not away from him. God got me through each and every day. My friends and church family prayed for me. But my heart was still full of sadness, sorrow, remorse, and despair. I also had feelings of guilt 
and regret that I wasn't able to reconcile my relationship with Megan before she died. Interestingly, though, there was no, no room, absolutely no room in my heart for any hatred or anger at the person who committed this crime because my heart was filled to capacity and overflowing with all those emotions. The idea of forgiveness hadn't even entered my thoughts. I was in so much pain and sorrow. Matthew 6, 14 to 15 says, and this is Jesus speaking at the Sermon on the Mount, if you forgive those who sin against you, then your Father will forgive you your sins. If you don't forgive those who sin against you, then your Father will not forgive your sins. To, the, to me, this is one of the most sobering verses in the Bible. If we don't forgive those who sin against us, then God won't forgive us our sins. Just think about that for a moment. If we don't forgive those who sin against us, then God will not forgive us our sins. It's not a salvation issue. It's a blessing issue. I was so blessed because Jesus Christ had started to empower me to begin the process of forgiving Megan's killer before I even knew who he was or knew his name. About a year later, a man, his first name is Robert, was arrested and charged with the aggravated murder of my daughter. There was a trial in Clackamas County. The jury found Robert guilty. I was asked to testify at the sentencing phase of the trial. I did, and I spoke to the jury about Megan and the impact of her death on my family and me. From the witness stand, I was able to look at Robert, and I told him, there is an eternity, an eternity with God and an eternity without God, and someday you'll have to face the ultimate judge. But before that day comes, you'll have to choose which side of eternity you'll be on, and I hope and pray that you make the right choice. I also told Robert that it was only through the power and presence of Jesus Christ in my life that I was able to forgive him. And when I finished testifying, I was crying, and so was he, and so were some members of the jury. Robert was sentenced to serve life in prison without the possibility of parole. About a year and a half later, I sensed that God wanted me to write a book. So I began writing on July 21st, 2010, the fourth anniversary of Megan's death. I thought I finished the book in November of that year, but not quite. God wanted me to write one more chapter. He wanted me to visit with Robert in prison. So I sent a letter to Robert and asked if he would be willing to meet with me. He responded back about a week and a half later and enclosed a visitor application. Friends were asking, why are you meeting with Robert and what are you going to talk about? My response was, I'm just praying that God would prepare my heart and prepare his heart for that meeting. The visit with Robert was scheduled for April 21st of 2011. We were given one hour for the visit from 1.30 in the afternoon till 2.30. We couldn't talk about the case because Robert was appealing the jury decision, but we could talk about family and other things that were not related to the case. We met in a small conference room at the Two Rivers Correctional Institution, which is in Umatilla. There was a pr prison facilitator there with us and a prison guard in the conference room. 
and Robert was escorted into the room right at 1.30. When he came into the room, we shook hands. He sat down across the table from me, and we began, we began talking. I was struggling with that conversation. It seemed like we had been talking for quite a while, but when I looked up at the clock, it was 1.35. So I asked some more questions, and I eventually ran out of anything else to talk about. I was emotionally and physically spent. I looked up at the clock, and it was 1.45. And we still had 45 minutes to go. I had no more questions. There was, there was no more conversation. So I looked at Robert, and I asked him if he had any questions for me. And he bowed his head, and he began to cry. And he said, I'm so sorry. And I knew exactly what he was talking about. And then he said, Judge, how can you be so kind to me? And the answer was Jesus. I told him it wasn't me. Jesus came crashing down into that conference room. In the next 45 minutes, this flew by in a flash. I was able to share the good news with Robert and share with him the idea, the fact that Jesus died for our sins and I shared the hope of eternity with him. I told Robert about Revelation 3.20 where Jesus said, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And I told Robert, this is God's invitation to have a personal relationship with him. God's a gentleman. He won't barge in. Only you can open the, open the door of your heart because the doorknob is on the inside of your heart. At the end of the hour, I prayed with Robert, and I know in my heart that Megan would have given him one of her business cards. At 2.30, the guard escorted Robert out of the conference room. The guard came back about 10 minutes later and said that he had never seen Robert cry before. In fact, on the way back to the general quarters, he said they had to stop in the hallway because Robert had broken down. The guard waited until he could gather himself before taking him back to the general quarters in the prison. The guard also told me that his son was killed about an earl a year earlier and that my words to Robert had given the guard hope and comfort. This was a real reminder to me. Whenever you're sharing the good news with somebody, other people may be listening while you're speaking. After my visit with Robert, I finished the last chapter of my book. I thought I was writing the book to help parents uh, cope with the loss of a child and to help others cope with the tragic loss of loved ones. But I soon discovered that God also had other plans for the book. The book opened doors for me to speak in churches, special events, and prisons around the United States and, in fact, in foreign countries. In prisons, I speak to inmates about Jesus Christ and forgiveness. One day I saw a documentary about a prison in Louisiana called Angola, and I learned that it sits on 18,000 acres, and at one time it was one of the bloodiest, most violent maximum security prisons in the United States. Angola had, had a very serious gang problem. In one year, 20 inmates were murdered there. Angola has one main prison and five satellite prisons that surround uh, the main prison. 
Angola is the only place in the country with its own zip code, the only prison in the country with its own television station. It has its own radio station. It has a hospice program that's one of the best in the country. It grows vegetables to feed all the men at Angola, which is over 6,000 now, and also four other prisons in Louisiana. And Angola also has a rodeo. And if you ever want to see something pretty interesting, just go on the Internet, Google Angola Rodeo, and you'll be amazed at what you see. Angola changed dramatically when a new warden by the name of Burl Kane arrived in 1994. He would tell you that he didn't want that job because of Angola's reputation. He knew how violent Angola was, and he wanted to do something about it. He knew that morally responsible people don't hurt others. And he knew that religion was one way to bring moral moral responsibility into the inmates' hearts. So Warden Cain invited the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary uh, to start a four-year college program in the main prison in Angola. The seminary began in 1995, and Angola had its first graduating class in 1999. The inmates' hearts and lives changed dramatically. The inmates were getting to know Jesus in the seminary. Their hearts were being spiritually transformed and they were impacting the lives of other inmates in the prison. The graduates, who are called inmate pastors, led Bible studies, they started churches, and they mentored other inmates in Angola. So they still had gangs in Angola, but the leaders of the gangs were now inmate pastors. As Angola graduated more and more inmates, the warden had a problem. He said he had too many inmate pastors. So Warden uh, Cain convinced the Louisiana Department of Corrections to allow his pastors to be sent out as missionaries into the rest of the prison system. The spiritual impact on the other prisons in Louisiana has been amazing. So I wanted to go and experience uh, Angola myself, so I called Warden Cain and left a message on his voicemail. I told the warden a little bit about my back background, that I was speaking in prisons around the country about Jesus Christ and forgiveness, and I'd love to come to Angola and speak to the inmates. God opened that door quickly. To my surprise, the warden called back and invited me to come. He also said, bring your wife with you. So we went down in October of 2013, and we spent four days on the Angola prison grounds. The visit was nothing short of awesome. Julie, my wife, is a beautiful woman, and never once did she feel uncomfortable with the inmates ogling her. Never once did we hear a cuss or swear word during the time that we were there. Because of the seminary, seminary and, of course, Jesus, Angola is now one of the safest maximum security prisons in the United States. In June of 2014, I was back in Angola, The night before I was returning home, Warden Kane and I were chatting in his office. And as we were wrapping up, I prayed for the warden. I was about to leave when he said, Judge, sit down, I want to pray for you. So when the warden of a maximum security prison says, Judge, sit down, I want to pray for you, you do what he says because he's going to let you out eventually. (laughs) Close your eyes and bow your head, he said. And this was his prayer. Dear Lord, 
don't let this man rest until the Oregon Department of Corrections has a Bible college. Amen. And I said, you know, I said, Warden, you know, you don't understand. You don't understand how impossible that's going to be. You don't know Oregon. Oregon is one of the most unchurched states in the country. You don't know what an impossible impossibility this is going to be. And he looked at me and he said, Judge, he said, who do we worship? And he was right. And the seed was planted. And I came back to Oregon and began to meet with some Oregon officials. The first person I met with was Colette Peters, the director of the Oregon Department of Corrections. She knew, everybody, everybody in corrections knows the history of Angola prison. And when I asked if she'd be interested in sending one of her representatives to Angola on a field trip, uh, she said yes. And I'm sure my mouth fell wide open at that point. I was so surprised. I mean, I, I was surprised, and yet I really should not be surprised. So I began to meet with more Oregon officials about the possibility of a field trip to the Angola prison, and they jumped on board. They felt Angola had a reputation, uh, and they wanted to take a look at it for themselves. So in January of 2015, I led a group of Oregon officials on a field trip to Angola. On that trip, there were two state senators, two state representatives, a local pastor, and some other state officials. The Oregon Attorney General heard that I was taking a group of uh, people down to Angola and contacted me and asked if one of her representatives could come along with us. So by the time we went to Louisiana, we had 12 people in our group, pretty interesting number. And the group had an amazing experience in Angola. Everyone thought they were going to prison, and they were, but they were also going to church. They just didn't realize it. The story that we heard most from the inmates in Angola was this. When I was in New Orleans or Baton Rouge committing crimes and doing drugs, I was in prison, and it wasn't until I was sent to Angola and came to the seminary that I became free. So on the outside, I was in prison. On the inside, I was free. The Oregon officials were simply amazed. So when I got back from that field trip to Angola, I started to meet with other representatives from a couple of Christian universities in the hope of getting some interest uh, for this project. God, in a special way, was connecting the right people at the right time. I retired as a full-time judge on January 1st of 2016, but realized soon that that retirement was really just a redeployment. While on my retirement vacation in Costa Rica, I was contacted by a friend from the Oregon Department of Corrections who said, Judge, they're, they're on board. The Department of Corrections wants to get involved in this project. I couldn't get back to the United States quick enough at that point. I had renewed hope. God opened the door for me to meet with Sheldon Nord, the president of Corbin University, and he was interested in getting involved in the project. So in the latter part of 2016, the Oregon Department of Corrections agreed to allow Corbin University, and Corbin University agreed to place a fully accredited four-year college degree program in prison, and we were on our way. I want to backtrack just for a moment here. You all remember I said Pastor Rich Jones uh, married my wife and I back in 2001. So fast forward to August 19th of 2014. On that day, 
I heard on the local news that Rich's daughter, Nicole, was murdered. Our lives had been inextricably bound together again. So Pastor Rich and I now belong to a club that no one should belong to. In February of 2017, I started a nonprofit, and we call it Paid in Full Oregon. You have some brochures on your table there in front of you. The purpose of Paid in Full is to provide the funds necessary for Corbin University to operate a fully accredited college degree program in the Oregon Department of Corrections. In part, these funds will be used to hire a program director to manage Corbin's extension in prison and to reimburse Corbin for the cost of providing professors to teach the inmates at OSCI. The degree that these men will receive in Corbin is the exact same degree that a student attending Corbin on the outside would receive. It's going to be a BS in psychology. The Oregon Department of Corrections has recently designated a 2,700 square foot space in the Oregon State Correctional Institution for the college classes. OSCI is a medium security prison which is located a couple of miles east of Salem. When we looked at the space, we realized this, this was going to be a major remodel. When we had to build a couple of classrooms inside this college space, it triggered all sorts of, it tri triggered the Salem City Code. So we're going to have to build two classrooms in the space, uh, it's gonna, and we'll be required uh, to uh, install a water sprinkler system. There's asbestos under the carpet uh, that needs to be removed. We need to build a new bathroom in there. There's mechanical engineering, plumbing, uh, heating. All that needs to be upgraded according to code. Uh, and let me just show you a video right now, just kind of give you a visual of what the, the space is like. All right, so that kind of gives you an idea of the space uh, that uh, DOC has allocated for the classroom, college classroom there. There are also some other special issues uh, with uh, remodels in prisons. So for example, subcontractors and their employees coming and going through the security and other issues like that. Now, the initial estimates for the remodel were $600,000, and then they dropped down to $500,000. And we recently retained an architect uh, who gave us a better idea of the cost after visiting uh, the site and then reviewing the codes that may be applicable. And the estimate has now dropped down to $375,000 to $400,000 to do the remodel. We have to do that before we can actually begin classes then in September of 2019. The Department of Corrections has set a target date of July 15, 2019 for completion of the remodel. And then the classes, as I said, will, God willing, begin in September of 2019. The Corbin degree will be a Bachelor of Science in Psychology with a minor in Theology. Inmates from the 13 male prisons in the state of Oregon will be eligible to apply as college students. Corbin is currently working uh, on the four-year curriculum. Uh, degree, the, the degree will require 30 hours of psychology, 30 credit hours of theology, plus 60 to 80 other credits, which would include English and, and uh, science and history and math. As I said earlier, the degree will be the exact same type of degree a student receives while attending Corbin in the free world. The impossible has happened. God has made an impossible impossibility happened. So just like the seminary changed the culture of the prison in Angola, paid in full, 
and Corbin Extension and the OSCI will combine to change the culture of the Oregon prison system. The inmates' hearts will be transformed, renewed, and restored. The Corbin Extension and OSCI will be open to all men in Oregon's prison system, be open to atheists, agnostics, Muslims, Christians, Jews, Wicca, Hindu. There will be no restrictions. There will be three main criteria for the men to qualify as students at the Corbin Extension. They'll need at least eight years left on their sentence, and that's because we want them to give back after they, re they receive their degree. We want them to give back and then be sent out, as, as I said earlier, as missionaries, like missionaries in the Oregon prison system. The next requirement will be they need to have a high school or GE degree, GED degree, and if they don't have one at the time we start the program, there's opportunities for them to get GEDs uh, while they're in prison there so they can apply the next year. And then they'll need to have at least one year clean disciplinary record. The classes are going to have uh, 25 men in a cohort model. Uh, the graduates will become mentors, counselors, chaplains, assistants. They'll help on suicide watches. They'll help give, they'll give death notices. They'll have cell-to-cell -cell conversations with their fellow inmates. And they'll help with gang renunciation in the prison system. These men will be transformed into spiritual leaders. And the prison culture in Oregon will begin to change from the inside out. Now, the graduates will also be sent out to other prisons in Oregon, like I said, to, to make a spiritual and moral impact on the inmate population. And most of all, these inmate graduates will offer hope to fellow inmates. Brocaine, uh, the former warden in Angola, once said, the greatest enemy of a prison inmate is lack of hope. And the Corbin Extension in OSCI will bring hope to the inmates in the Oregon prison system. Not only will it bring hope to the inmates in the prison system, but it's also going to bring hope to the families on the outside that have their son or, or their, 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 their husband or their relative, one of their relatives in prison. It's going to give them hope knowing that the time they're spending in prison, they're able to get a college degree. So we've begun a financial campaign to help meet the goal of starting the first classes at OSCI in the fall of 2019. As I mentioned earlier, the costs of the remodel are estimated to be $375,000 to $400,000. It is a formidable yet surmountable task, and we know that with God, all things are possible. After all, we worship the God of the impossible, right? Our operating costs are going to be around $300,000 per year, and each year these costs will, will increase a little because of the need for more professors to go in as, as the cohorts increase. Our goal is to have 1,000 individuals contribute $25 a month, and 100 churches give $100 a month from their mission budget by, the year, by year two of our program. So 95% of all sentenced inmates in Oregon will eventually be released back into our communities, 95%. In what condition do we want them to come back into our communities? Do we want them to come back with hardened hearts or transformed hearts? Just imagine, instead of returning to our communities with a handgun strapped to their belt buckle, they come back with a college degree 
or a Bible. Statistics show that the recidivism rate will be cut in half with a college degree. Imagine how low that recidivism rate will be with a Bible in their hand. As in other states like in Texas and Louisiana and Georgia, North Carolina, Bible colleges, seminaries, and faith-based universities are transforming prison cultures. So this is the goal. This is the destination for this project. The project will provide college education and a spiritual transformation for inmates in the Oregon prison system. The culture of Oregon's prison system will be forever changed. There's a Greek word that I love, and it's called kairos, K-A-I-R-O-S. It means the moment in time when change is possible. Now is the Kairos moment. Now is the moment in time when change is possible for the Oregon Department of Corrections. Not only in the Oregon prison system, but also in other systems around the state, prison systems around the state. So what I'd like to do now is uh, last, uh, last spring, uh, I went down to Darrington Unit Prison, which is in, they call their prisons in Texas units, and I went down to the Darrington Unit, which is just south of Houston, and uh, to look at their uh, seminary program there and how it's working. And so here's a short video of uh, a Darrington student, uh, Darrington Seminary student, and he was speaking to us there. They had a, had a gathering of... Uh, uh, the inmates there, the inmates in the Texas prison system all wear white, and so you'll see this. He's a second-year student uh, at the seminary in Darrington. Let's show that. I want to give you one example of that in my own life, right? So I come to prison when I was 18 years old. I've uh, been here about 20 years now. And I came with a lot of hatred in my heart. A gang member grew up. My dad was in prison. I come from a genealogy of criminals and gang members and all of this. And I had hatred in my heart towards the system, towards the cops. I had that us versus them mentality. And people would try to tell me about God. And I rejected this idea that he would send me to hell. And I complained to him like this. I said, first of all, I didn't ask to be born. Second of all, you put me in this situation. You put me in this messed up family, in these messed up parents. In a, in a neighborhood surrounded by guns and drugs and violence and alcohol and all of these things, you put me in this situation. Now you're going to punish me because I turned out the way you set me up to turn out? Now, I thought I had a good objection against God. But years later, when I would read the gospel message for the first time, I saw that I was seeing things all wrong. Because Jesus said that the problem was not the circumstance. The problem was the heart. And the problem applied not only to people in my situation, in my environment, but to people all over the world, to judges, to cops, to uh, any person of high status you can think of, politicians and the like, that the problem was universal. And that realization transformed, it shattered my whole worldview because I realized that all along I had it wrong. That all along I thought the problem was the circumstance. And as I observed my surroundings, I realized that even in this penitentiary, there's people that come from good homes, that come from lots of money, that come from good neighborhoods, and yet they did the same evil thing that I did. And so I realize now that I've given my life to the Lord Jesus Christ, that what these men out here need is for men like us to be equipped, not only with the simple gospel message, but the ability to communicate that message in a way that answers their questions, that answers the objections, sincere objections that they have in their heart. And this seminary program is a good place 
to do that. That's what we're doing. We're learning. We're being equipped. And a seminary in Oregon or any other state would have the same effect because you know this penitentiary is the place where you find the weak, the foolish, the lowly, the despised, the things that God said that he uses Amen. for his Amen. Yeah. I thought that was just really impactful. Uh, some of the men that I've met in prison uh, are so articulate and, and, and they really, they're, 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 they're eager to be able to to learn the message of the gospel and then to share that with their fellow inmates. And the seminaries, uh, the Bible colleges, the Christian universities that are providing these programs uh, in, in 12 other states in the country are going to help these men do that. So there are times when we don't know why God allows bad things to happen, but we do know that God is in the business of turning ashes into beauty. He's turning tragedy into triumph. And Romans 8.28 says once again, all things work for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And Romans 8.28 doesn't say some things or most things. It says all things, even the brutal murders of two young daughters. So I'm, I'm finished now, and I want there's some brochures on your table there that you have, and there's some little cards there, information cards, if you want to give me your email address, and we'll keep you informed as to the status of what's going on in paid in full Oregon. And I would like to uh, just share some good news and, 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 you know, and give God praise for what's going on in paid in full Oregon. I mentioned you know, we needed that money uh, to start the uh, uh, remodel. We'll need to have all that money in our bank account before the state even starts the remodel. But uh, we had our first major fundraiser several weeks ago. Uh, just by God's <laughs> uh, grace, we had a a guy named Daryl Strawberry. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of him before. Uh, but uh, Daryl uh, was a Major League Baseball player for New York Mets, New York Yankees. Uh, he was on teams that won uh, four World Series. Uh, and uh, he ended up getting in, having some drug and alcohol problems and uh, uh, ended up going to prison for 11 months. And so he has a great story of redemption that he was able to share at that fundraiser. And we ended up raising about $120,000 for our first major fundraiser. That's unheard of in the state of Oregon for a startup. So. Yeah, God has just been blessing us so much. And, you know, it's all, all attributed to God. And then, then two weeks ago, I was telling uh, Pastor Mike earlier uh, today that uh, we, we applied for a grant uh, at the Oregon Community Foundation. And uh, the Oregon Community Foundation does not give grants to relig re religious organizations, a very secular foundation. It is like the fifth largest foundation in the country, which I found out about. So uh, we applied for a grant there, and uh, I uh, didn't go to my mailbox for a couple of days. I went to my mailbox on a, two Sundays ago and opened up the mail, and here was a check uh, payable uh, to paid in full Oregon for $25,000 uh, with the promise of $15,000 in year two and $10,000 in year three. So $50,000 uh, from a secular organization. And it's just, it's just, it's really amazing what a sweet spot that we are in with paid in full Oregon. Not only do we appeal, you know, to the Christian, and our goal is to, to spread the gospel throughout the, the Oregon prison system, but it also appeals to the secular world because these men are going to end up with a, a, a regular college four-year degree with a BS, BS in psychology. So 
those are the things going on now. And, and Mike, you had mentioned something. If, if any, I have a little bit of time left, I think. Uh, and if anybody has any questions, I'd love to answer some questions. Uh, uh, feel free to take the brochures with you. So any question? Yes, sir. Uh, the question is, having a life sentence in prison would not be considered a negative. Actually, it would be the most positive thing because that you're, it would be the, the best of, the both, of both worlds, really. In Angola, 70% uh, of the inmates in Angola are lifers. And in, and in Angola, life means life. It means you die in prison. Uh, and they have their own graveyard there. I don't know if you, you knew this. When Billy Graham passed away, the... Men there at Angola had actually made Billy Graham's casket there, uh, and they and they do that. So, but yeah, so life is life is a, a, is <laughs> we're we're hoping for some life. And wouldn't it be interesting? This is this is how God kind of works things. I mean, we we just worship a God whose whose plans are totally different than what we would ever expect. But just imagine that Robert going to college in prison, you know, and getting a degree. So yeah. Other questions? Yes, sir. Have you gauged any early interest from some of these new inmates? Uh, we we have not. I, I know that we're gonna that that, that I think we're gonna have substantial applicants for this program. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think it's gonna be really. I think it's gonna be very very well received. Uh, the Oregon Department of Corrections is is doing a survey now for us. We talked about those three criteria, you know, men have, having at least eight years left on their sentence and, uh, uh, and then GED or high school degree. So, yeah. yeah. Okay, any other questions at all? Yes, sir. How many can you accommodate now and do you expect to try to accommodate more in the future? How's that further Okay, so the question is how many can we accommodate? We're going to have, we're going to limit the program to 25 men. Uh, uh, per cohort per year, so we'll end up, you will have four cohorts eventually after year four going. Uh, and so uh, that's going to be the number number of men, and that's what we're going we're to accommodate. The Oregon prison population, uh, we have 14 prisons in the state of Oregon, one women's prison, uh, and there are around 14,500 men and women in prison in the state of Oregon. The one women's prison at uh, Coffee Creek, in Wilsonville, uh, there's, I think, around 1,200 women. So we don't have, some people say, well, why aren't we doing this for the women? Well, we don't have a significant enough population of women in Oregon uh, to, to do a program like this. And secondly, uh, the average sentence for a woman, I think, is less than four years. So that means they wouldn't even finish up. Uh, they wouldn't have an opportunity to finish up. And we, and we do want them to give back. I mean, that's all part of the program is, is these men get a degree, and then we want them to give back for at least least four years. Yes, sir. How many of those 14,500 are I don't know. That's what we're trying to figure out now. The, the DOC is going to be, be doing some work on that, and they've got all those statistics, but uh, we don't have those yet. So, Yeah, any other? Yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah. You you don't look familiar. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So so it is. It's uh, it's open to all the prisons. So there are 13 male adult 
adult male prisons in the state of Oregon. So the, the largest, I think, prison is in Snake River, Snake River, and I think they have a little over 3,000 inmates there. So if there's an inmate there uh, that would qualify and wanted to apply and then was accepted into the college, they would transfer him from Snake River to OSCI. Yeah. yeah. Yes, sir. Well, you know, um, it's interesting. There, there have been several roadblocks thrown out there. Uh, you know, so I've been working on this for four years, and uh, uh, it, it, and those two of the roadblocks have come from Christian brothers, and and so so and God just kind of swept them away uh, in, in an instant. I mean, they were there, and then they were, then uh, they they were gone. Uh, you know, we have not heard. Uh, any other obstacles at all? I mean, every, everybody we talk to is saying, "Yeah, why aren't, why aren't we doing this now? Why haven't we done it before?" And so, so the obstacles. I'm not quite sure what they're going to be. I mean, you know, there's the, we just ran into one the, uh, last week. The architect I mentioned that we hired. Uh, so we had we had to uh, uh, come up with uh, uh, we the first architect we talked with wanted sixty six thousand dollars to prepare the plans. Uh, for this remodel, <laughs> it's it's not a major remodel. I mean, it really is in terms of construction. It's 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 a minor project, but uh, he wanted sixty six thousand dollars. So we felt we needed to do some due diligence for our donors and found found a, found an architect that would that gave us a price not to exceed not to exceed forty four thousand five hundred dollars. And so we said, yeah, that sounds good. And so the Department of Corrections they were okay with him, and they ended up. Uh, uh, meeting with him, and he was he was in the process of beginning to uh, draw up some plans, and then the DOC sent their contract to him, and uh, uh, he did not want to sign the contract uh, that they sent to him, and so <laughs> we're back to square one on the architect. We're in we're in looking for an architect, but the state required that money. It was interesting. The state required the money forty four thousand five hundred dollars before they would begin to speak with the architect, and we got the money. God gave us the money the week that we needed the money. So we had a $20,000 donation from some fellow and 18000 from somebody. I mean, it just it was amazing how that, you know, how that money comes into the, into the bank account. So now this is an obstacle. Uh, we, we're, we're in the process of looking for another, another architect. I'm meeting with a firm in Salem on Tuesday. So, uh, but, you know, and, and it could be we may have some, we've had some inquiries, well, do the men have to take theology courses? Um, well, yeah, that's part of the deal. You know, this is not, this is not a, uh, you don't have electives. You know, you don't go home during the summer. Uh, so, so they don't need to worry about summer jobs, you know. So, so, so that's why we're going to have a few more hours than what typically you, you need for a, 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 you know, a, a regular four-year degree because of the fact that they're there. They're going to be there all the time. Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Uh, there is a uh, uh, study that came out uh, by Baylor University a year ago in, in the summer of 2017 
which actually looked at the Angola Prison Seminary and the one in Texas, the Darrington Unit, and compiled all these statistics. And so it shows that, in fact, these programs do work. Uh, and it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a great question, and I'll, I'll respond to it this way. Uh, do they, does it work? Are there successes? Well, because of my, the connections that we had, God connected me with Angola. Uh, we ended up, uh, uh, our, the church I was going to at the time, Sunrise Church in Hillsboro, lost their prison ministry pastor. And so uh, contacted Warden Kane. Hey, has there been anybody gotten, that, that has gotten out of Angola prison who was a graduate, uh, anybody out there that we can contact. So, so we ended up contacting a fellow by the name of Clifford Jones uh, in New Orleans. He had had a life sentence in Angola but was miraculously, re- miraculously released in 2006. He was in the first class uh, for the seminary in Angola. He started in 1995, graduated in 1999. Uh, and he had been released in 2006. He was actually pastoring at a Baptist church in New Orleans in the ghetto where he was raised. And uh, uh, so we contacted him, and so uh, he came, came to my house. Uh, we had some people from the Department of Corrections. We had supper one evening there and just kind of did an informal interview. He ended up getting hired by Sunrise Church about three years ago and uh, moved up here from New Orleans up to the great white northwest, and he's a, he has become one of my best friends now. Uh, so he's a convicted felon, a lifer who got out, and uh, the circuit court judge, an old circuit court judge in Oregon, and this convicted lifer are, are now best of friends. So he is actually on our board, uh, Clifford Jones. And so he is the poster child of the success uh, in how this program, you know, can just change hearts, transform hearts, and turn these men into spiritual leaders. And, and, and it's just the impact he's having in Washington County is tremendous. I mean, he's a rock star there with the Washington County Jail and the Corrections Center there. Does that answer your question or part of it? Yeah, so my, one of my life verses is Micah 6.8. Anybody know that? What does God require of us but to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God? That scripture was on my desk, on my bench, since the last part of November of 2000. And, and so uh, it's really, sometimes you really have to do, I, I, I don't know if any of you, if you look up my name or Google my name, you'll see other things about me. Uh, and one of the things that I really wanted to do as a judge in the courthouse was to be a light. And so my faith was public, and I expressed my faith publicly in the courtroom. I recited scriptures. I talked about God. Um, and uh, uh, toward the end of my, my career, after I made a decision to re- I'd re- I wanted to retire three years before I did, but, you know, God says no. Uh, he said, you didn't pray to me about that. You didn't ask me about that. I have you where I want you, and I want you to stay there for a while. So even though I wanted to retire, I didn't, and so I stayed on for three more years and uh, ended up, uh, and if you remember this, when, when Oregon, there was, it was against the law to have same-sex marriages, and then a judge down in Eugene ruled that uh, uh, <clears throat> the ban on same-sex marriages was unconstitutional. So I ended, I, as, ju- as a judge, I ended up, 
you know, doing a lot of marriage. I did a thousand weddings as a judge. That, that helped finance my trips around the world to, 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 to speak in prisons and to, uh, uh, I'm an evangelist now, so, so just to evangelize. And so uh, I stopped doing weddings, just quietly stopped doing weddings in uh, 2014. And then about a year later, there was an article in the Oregonian about a judge in Marion County who, who uh, uh, there was a complaint filed against him for not doing same-sex weddings. And the article said he's the only judge in the state that's doing has, has stopped doing weddings. Well, you know, people in Washington County knew about me, and so they they sent a letter. Somebody sent sent a complaint to the Judicial Fitness Commission. So I ended up going through what I would call first-world persecution. There's third-world persecution, which is you get your head cut off for being a follower of Jesus Christ, and then there's first-world where you you know, my name was spread across the country as an anti-gay judge, which is absolutely false. And, uh, you know, I ended up getting letters from around the country. People go back to Kentucky, you bigot, and stuff like that. And so, so, so that was part of the, part of the process. Uh, so it's, it's difficult, but, I, but I, I ended up, the complaint was eventually dismissed. I had a law firm from Arizona represent me on that matter. It would have been over $100,000 to have them represent me, but they did it for free. It's, they're a law firm called Alliance Defending Freedom, which is one of the best in the country for freedom of religion, freedom of speech issues. So, so they represented me. The, the case was dismissed. So I continue to express uh, the love of Jesus Christ in any courtroom that I'm serving in. So, so, and I actually pray with people in the courtroom. So God has protected me just amazingly well, during that whole process. So, yeah, that's a little bit of background. So. Hey, guys, we give it up for Tom. Yeah, and Tom has more time, too, so if you have more questions, you know, he's happy to visit with you and, and talk with you further. Um, but thank you, Tom, for the work you're doing, and thank you for sharing that, too. Um, you know, Tom mentioned the, the book that he had written. Uh, it's called Losing Megan. It's a really powerful story that you could read and, and glean even more from. So, um, guys, thanks again for coming. I want to pray, Tom. I want to pray for you, and then we'll, we'll dismiss. Father, thank you um, for this incredible work that you're doing with Paid in Full. And... Um, we just want to see um, that ministry grow um, to raise all the funds necessary. We want to see the lives of these inmates change, where they will have a hope and a future in your son, Jesus Christ, and that they would be ambassadors in the prisons, uh, missionaries outside the prisons, um, where lives would be changed for your glory, Father. Um, and there will be hope where there is no hope, and that's not just for the inmates, but their families as well. And I pray that you would raise up more and more people to... Uh, partner with Tom um, and his board and, 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 the, and the professors and everything going on at the, at the, at the prison and um, with Corbin University as well. Father, thank you for paving the way. Thank you that Tom was obedient um, and uh, to receive this challenging call um, that he is uh, faithfully pursuing. So um, I pray for them. Just with wonderful, great blessings on him and his ministry. And Father, thank you for, again, it's a chance for us to gather as men, um, and I pray that we would grow in the gospel. It's not just the inmates that need to grow in the understanding of the gospel, it is all of us. And we do want to see the world change. We want to be redeemers and missionaries and ambassadors here for you, Father. So give us the strength and courage as well. Uh, and I thank you for that really inspirational video, too, of the inmate. Just you see his passion for, um, for you and just for the heart change that he has experienced. And we all need to experience that, Father. Um, and I pray that it would be real and true um, and that we'd be better men for it. Uh, Father, thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.